Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, November 17th. In the world of set design, Ez Devlin is a trailblazing, unstoppable force. Her remarkable career has seen her craft stages for global superstars like Beyonce, U2, and Adele, as well as immersive experiences for fashion brands like Louis Vuitton, Saint Laurent, and most recently Gucci, which brought its Cosmos exhibition to London's 180 The Strand. But to describe Ez as a set designer only feels somewhat reductive. She is a deep thinker who approaches her work like a creative philosopher, examining critical questions about the world through her work. Every day when I collaborate, the practice is to see it through my own eyes, then see it through my collaborator's eyes, then finally to see it through the audience's eyes, and then building on all of those converging and colliding sometimes viewpoints, then do it again with another layer of viewpoints and you're constantly building up this kaleidoscopic lens of learning. I'm pleased to share this mesmerizing conversation filled with beautiful insights and observations 
from one of the world's most talented creatives. Here's as Devlin on the BOF podcast. Well, we have just been trying to perfect sound for the last 40 minutes because there's two perfectionists on this. It turns out that me and Imran are very similar in that if we're going to dedicate any atom of our energy to anything, we want to most humbly do it to the best of our ability. We do indeed. Please excuse us for any sound quality issues this week, everyone. I'm here with Ez Devlin. We have been anticipating this conversation with some time because Ez is amazing and I'm so delighted to have her on the BOF podcast this week. And as always, as I want to talk about all of the exciting stuff that you're working on now, because every time you and I see each other, whether that's at a fashion show or in an airport somewhere around the world, you always have so many amazing things going on. And of course, you've just released a book, which I have here, which is incredible and filled with so much of your work. But I wanted to start by kind of going back to where it all began an early life with As Devlin growing up in Rye. I, I, you know, I have to be honest with you, I don't even know where Rye is. So first, can you just tell us a little bit about young As Devlin and what were you like growing up? So if you look at a map of the British Isles and you go down to the bottom right-hand corner, there is a long sandy beach called Camber Sands, at the end of which is a power station called Dungeness which is where Derek Jarman's garden and cottage is. So if you wander along Camber Sands and you go inland a bit, you will find a small hill town called Rye. And it's made of cobbled streets. There's a church at the top of it that you can see for miles in the mar- from the marshes around. And I lived on one of those cobbled streets and it was called Mermaid Street. And the bottom of the street used to be the sea. So I always had that sense of the sort of narrative shape of this street, even that it was about a mermaid and it came from the sea up to the shore. Wow. Well, what the listeners can't see right now is as you were saying all of that, you closed your eyes and it was almost like you were taking yourself back to that place. It sounds amazing. So when you were growing up there, what were you like growing up? I guess it was a time when you had to make up a lot of the architecture of your day and of your time. There weren't so many things on offer in terms of there, as you know, there were three TV channels and they didn't start. The TV didn't actually switch on till about three in the afternoon. So generally I was one of four children. And what I remember us saying a lot to my parents was, we're bored, what can we do? And of course, like the famous Pet Shop Boys song, my mother would say, If you're bored, it's because you're boring. Stop being boring and think of something to do. So we spent a lot of time going to the beach every day after school. We had a small Diane, a Citroen Diane, which is like a 2CV, but kind of straighter. And it was bright yellow. And on the cobbled street where we lived, in winter, my mum had to put a hot water bottle under the bonnet of the car so that the car would start, so the spark plugs wouldn't freeze up. And she would point the car downhill to make sure that if she really couldn't start it, we could push it. And after school every day in the summer, we would go to the beach. And it was usually shitty weather because it was England, (laughs) but we didn't care. So it was quite feral. It was quite a feral childhood in some ways. Were you always creative? Like, did you know you were going to 
have a career somehow doing creative things? I probably didn't know what a career was. I was very lucky in that my mother was a teacher and my father was a journalist who wrote about education. And they both care passionately and really are very interested in education and schools. So their focus for us was how much can you learn? And I think they had a sense that if we continued to learn, we would find our way. So they didn't put any pressure on us to consider what our career would be. And there was a lot of emphasis on how to show your love, how to show your friendship. So we would make things as gifts for people a lot of the time. We come from quite a big family. So at Christmas, we would make gifts. So yeah, there was already a dynamic that you could use your skill and your craft to show love. It sounds like an idyllic childhood, but I guess at some point you did start making some decisions about school and education. You know, how did you go about thinking about those decisions? When I was at school, I wanted to do everything. I was a bit like that character in Midsummer Night's Dream, like Bottom the Weaver, who wants to play mm-hmm. all the parts at once. So I was like, well, I can do the music and I will paint the scenery. I will write it as well. I was just curious and eager in every direction. So when it came time to choose where to go at the end of school, I really based my decision on my friends and my who I considered my people. And the people who were going on to do art were amazing and brilliant and very sure, I felt, of what they wanted to say. And I didn't feel that sure. I didn't feel I had much to say when I was 18 and I thought it was more important to learn. So I went to university and I read for three years. I just read my way from Anglo-Saxon Beowulf all the way up to Adrienne Rich, 20th century American poet. And then I felt able to then be a mature student at art school. And I went to St. Martin's when I was 22 to do the, the sort of school leavers foundation course. And that felt great because I took it really seriously because I was a bit older. You know, it's interesting just now when you said that as a young person, you wanted to do all of the things, play all of the parts, play all of the roles. You know, sometimes when I read the way people describe you in the press, they talk about you as a Renaissance woman, like a person of many, many gifts and many talents. And certainly in my interactions with you over the years, I've felt that. But when you meet someone now, and you know, if you were introducing yourself to our listeners here all over the world who might not be familiar with your work, like how do you even describe what you do? Do you know, that's such a good question. And it happened to me the other day, it happens all the time that I'm in a room of people who I don't know. And sometimes I'm sat at a table between two people I don't know. And recently that happened and they said, oh, what do you do? And I sort of dread that question a bit because there's no short answer. So I had a copy of this book that I've just made and it's called An Atlas of Es Devlin. And I did something which was maybe a little bit obnoxious, but I found it quite helpful. I got the book out and I put it on their plate and I said, do you know what? I'm going to go and get my food. (laughs) (laughs) Will you just have a little look at this book and then we can take it from there because It's quite a complicated thing to explain. And the book, I hope, is a sort of evocation of what I do. So you put this book on their plate and you leave to go get your food. (laughs) 
yeah. and you come back, <laughs> what was their reaction? Like, did, did I mean, because honestly, when I opened the book, and by the way, the book is stunning. I've never seen a book of this shape made up this way with so many, I mean, you can lose yourself in this book. I can lose myself in all of this work that you've done, but our listeners don't have the benefit of looking through this book. So like, I'm still going to push you to try to describe what it is that you do. Okay. So in answer to your first question, they didn't eat the book, which was a relief because it was actually my gift to the host at the lunch. But what do I do? So I do a number of things. I consider myself to be an artist. I make large scale installations and public sculptures generally. Many of the sculptures include projection, light, sound. I often use my voice as I'm using it now. And a lot of the works are made specifically to try and introduce visitors to a way they can shift their perspective, often regarding the biosphere, climate, in a gentle and hopefully visually stimulating way. I also do stage design, and that might be for theatre, for plays, or it might be for opera or for pop concerts, quite a lot of large scale stadium concerts and big public events like Super Bowl or Olympics. And then I also make environments for fashion shows as well and for exhibitions, exhibitions maybe of my work, but also to tell the stories of the work of others. So that's why looking at the book is easier than listing it. Well, that's how you and I met actually was, I think you were giving me a private tour of an exhibition at 180 The Strand in London many years ago. It was a, a Louis Vuitton exhibition. And I just remember being kind of enraptured in the way you thought about everything. So when you think about the why behind your work, like the reason the kind of work you do is important to all of those people that you work with. And by the way, I think that's a common thread through a great deal of your work, even the way the book is organized, is so much of your work is collaborative. It's about working with other creative people. What's the why? Why is this work important? Maybe the best way to answer that question, which is such a good one, is to perhaps pick up where I left off with the education, because having done the junior art school entry-level course at Central St. Martin's, I then was a bit stumped people were beginning to ask, will you ever get a job? What will your practice be? And I ended up walking into a room full of set designers and I didn't know that I was interested in theatre. It wasn't that. I just really liked these people. And I would say in answer to your question, I have spent the rest of my 30-year practice walking into rooms feeling good about the people in the rooms and wanting to stay in the room and make things with them. And the book begins with a series of 16 pages, each of which has a hole cut out of it. And surrounding each of the holes are lists of names of all the people that I've collaborated with. And that's a sort of conjuring of the practice in a way, in that it's been a series of years of looking through the lenses of others. And so when you ask about the why, I guess I have seen the best way to use my time on the planet, which I consider to be an immense privilege to have been born into, is to learn as much as I can every day 
and to see things through the eyes of others, to make things with people in ways that I would not have made on my own. Every day when I collaborate, the practice is to see it through my own eyes, then see it through my collaborator's eyes, then finally to see it through the audience's eyes, and then building on all of those converging and colliding sometimes viewpoints, then do it again with another layer of viewpoints. And you're constantly building up this kaleidoscopic lens of learning. And I think it's a very helpful muscle to learn just in living generally. The more we can unother, the more we can cease to judge another person's viewpoint as being other and start to enfold it within our own and understand it. I think that's helpful societally as well. Indeed. I mean, it's so interesting because, like I said, you and I first met through the lens of fashion, and it was only then that I realized that, you know, after we got to know each other a bit about all the work that you've done with people like you two and Kanye West and Adele, and, and you know, there's so many collaborators, but obviously this is the business of fashion podcasts and events and experiential moments have become such a big part of how the fashion industry engages with not just real life audiences, but virtual audiences and audiences that maybe aren't physically present at an event, but experience it on social media. And so I'm curious to learn, like, how did you first, when did you first start engaging with fashion and what was your reaction or impression to the way the fashion industry approaches events? And what do you think kind of the breadth of your experience enabled you to bring to like fashion experiences that maybe wasn't part of the landscape? Well, this is such a lovely question to dig into. So I can tell you very specifically, I was on holiday in August 2014 and I got a phone call from a person who's now one of my dear friends called Faye McLeod. Oh yeah. And she said, oh yes, we're doing a show. Can you help? And she said, it's going to be on October the 6th. I said, but October 6th, that's tomorrow. Yeah. How can we possibly do anything? She said, no, don't worry. We're already, I've got this great colleague called Ansel and we've already got some ideas. We've got a plan. Don't worry. You just come when you get back from your holiday. I said, do you need me to come now? No, no, don't worry. And I started to meet again, a new tribe of people. And I guess I had been nervous. I was brought up to wear the clothes that were handed down from my sister. I had never stepped into a designer shop ever. It would not have been something we did. I generally wore clothes that were secondhand. You know, I made a bit of effort, but it wasn't, I didn't understand anything about the world of fashion, to be honest. And I was guided through it really carefully by really lovely, quite spiritual, humble, beautiful people. And what I've learned from that first exhibition at 180 Strand to now, where eight years later we have the Gucci Cosmos exhibition on at the moment, is how to tell a story about the history of a house through an experience that an audience will walk through. And you remember, because I walked you through that 180 Strand exhibition, we were finding our way, we were seeing if this was even possible. And it's so joyful, I must say now, to have built again a bit of practice, a bit of muscle. And the piece that we've made now with um, Sabato de Sano, I must say, I really do feel that when you arrive and you step into this small red elevator, you genuinely get transported 
back into the why of how Gucci happened. That's what interests me is why did this house happen? What was the point? And when you understand the story that an 18-year-old Italian intern was operating the first electric elevator in London, seven minutes going up, seven minutes going down, people were scared, people were nervous. He either had to chat to them, maybe about their horses and their cars and their country houses, or he had to avert his gaze while they were feeling sick, about to vomit, and he would just look at their luggage, take in every detail, seven minutes up, seven minutes down. And it seems to me that that cyclical journey of going round and round, up and down in the red lift, I think that's the origin moment, the mythology, the origin beat of Gucci. That was my conclusion. You know, I was just in that lift a few weeks ago because there was a Diwali party at the Savoy Hotel and my partner and I got into that lift and we saw the sign that said the first lift in London. And you really got a sense of, wow, like at that time to walk into a little room and have the doors close and for it to move up and down in the way that we're all 100% accustomed to now, like that was a real new experience. And for Guccio di Gucci to be in that lift and, you know, have had that experience and then to kind of put a, a brand like Gucci to be born from all of the observations he had. I mean, that's beautiful. And that's part of the story you're telling at Gucci Cosmos. But you've done more than exhibitions as like you've done a lot of fashion shows as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really enjoyed the Yves Saint Laurent in Morocco that we did together with Anthony Vaccarello. You know, that's a classic case of I had sort of drawn a few things, but I would never have dared, to be honest, to suggest that in the time we had, it would have been possible to achieve lifting this ring of light out of the water. But Anthony had this confidence. He just said, yep, yep, we just lift it up. And sure enough, it happened. And, and often what I really learned about the fashion shows is how emotional they can be with the music, the fact that it only happens once. People are gathered in that place physically just for this moment. You can't reveal a train of thought more than once. And I've really begun to learn that by spending time with the designers, by them allowing me into their thought process. And Sabato, particularly on the Gucci piece that we've just done, really helping me understand what his mission is, why that deep red colour, where does it come from? And it's very personal. There's a lot of vulnerability exposed in it. He describes the place where he sort of discovered himself. He describes a place where he feels most in love, most alive, a specific clock in a specific town square in a specific village. And that ability to be so precisely personal and vulnerable and yet know that the ricochet from that very personal thing will express itself globally. That's very precious, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, as a creative discipline or medium, fashion has the ability to touch so many people, probably only rivaled, I'd say, by music in terms of its way of touching people and reaching people everywhere. But fashion's only just coming into its power of influence and culture. And I think it's so interesting that more and more designers are thinking about fashion as a medium to influence conversations that are happening that are you know, not necessarily about fashion, just about everything that's happening in the world around us. I think that's so true. And when we were in Shanghai, when we opened the Cosmos exhibition, I had actually just fallen off my bike and I was feeling a little 
discombobulated because I cycle everywhere and I've never fallen off before, touch wood. And I said to my team, I said, listen, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to come. They said, please just come and explain your ideas. We want to explain what the thinking is. So I turned up, I went on this stage and I was able to be really personal, honest about what the ideas were. And I said something which I had just observed, which is the houses. And I don't really love the word brand. You know what what I'm like in runabout words. Mm -hmm. I always like to look at where a word came from. And for me, brand comes from burnt. Brand is like when you burn the skin of an animal or a human to indicate who owns it. So I don't love the word brand, but I do love the word house, the sort of architecture of a company of people, the house. So what struck me is just how much a house can determine what my 16-year-old daughter considers to be valuable, desirable, and how much with a small modulation, quite a small number of people on the planet really who run the houses could alter what is valuable, what is desirable, just with a few bits of modulation, you know. Um, And I saw just now that Gucci have done their new bag that's all vegan with Billie Eilish, and that was really exciting to see. And I think the houses can be really bold in how they start to shift people's perspective in quite a conscious way. I think that's exciting. We'll be right back with more on the BOF podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, 
jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts, and not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. As you think about the way, you know, you've now had a chance to get to know several different fashion houses. You've mentioned Anthony Baccarello. You've mentioned Sabato Di Sarno at Gucci. You've mentioned, you know, Nicola Jasquier at Vuitton. I mean, you've had a chance to see inside fashion as someone who's kind of comes from outside fashion, but also understands more about how the industry works. Like what opportunities do you think the fashion industry has in terms of the way it expresses itself through experiences that have not yet been realized? I mean, you've worked in so many different disciplines from theater to music and beyond. You know, what more can this industry do? Because I feel like we're only at the beginning of this experiential design moment in fashion. I think that's so true. I think garments, there's some beautiful poems about songs stitched into the seams of garments. I think the clothes that you wear can carry so much meaning, so much poetry. And I think this time, this moment in history is an aberration, this moment in Western cultural history. I think even as recently as 300 years ago, people had probably five outfits at the max, even people like you and I you wouldn't have had so many and each one would have had that much more meaning and value. And if you look at a company like Patagonia, who create a community in which when you've finished with a garment, you bring it in, it'll get recycled into the next batch of garments and you feel like you're part of a story. Every single piece of material that goes into what you're wearing on your body will go back into circulation and come back onto someone else's body. And that there's so many stories to tell about that and to help people experience that. There are secrets that you can weave into the folds of a garment. Those are the things I would really love to emphasize. There was a book when I was growing up called Masquerade by Kit Williams, and we all had it in the 80s. And it was a treasure hunt book. And every weekend you would look at the book and try and figure out where to start digging for treasure because there was a literal piece of golden jewelry that had been made and buried somewhere in England. And each weekend people would go out and try and dig for this treasure. And then of course, one weekend after about three years, somebody found it. But clothes can indicate so much. When you talk about experiential practices, the act of putting on a second skin, of having something that close to your body that goes everywhere with you, that is a kind of co-author of your day, you might consider that the jacket you put on becomes the co-author of your evening. I often feel that about my garments. They went out with me that night or my bag came 
with me. It experienced that meeting with me or that encounter or that kiss was experienced by me and what I was wearing. And these shoes took me to this place. I think the stories we tell about what we wear could be so rich in that way if we start to treat our objects and our clothes as protagonists and co-authors of our day-to-day lives, you know. That's so interesting. I love that because, you know, as I'm hearing you talk, I was also thinking, you know, you've had the opportunity to work with these very big houses, but so many of the most creative, most innovative people working in fashion are just starting out. You know, they might be designers who'd have their own small businesses. For people who don't have the scale of budget or resources that some of these big houses have, you know, what advice do you have to offer to you know, younger creative people just at the beginning of their careers on how they can bring some of these experiential elements about the stories that our clothes set, tell to us or say about us into the way that they express themselves and kind of build understanding about that new world, that new house that they're just at the beginning of building? I think it's a really good question. And I think the advice I would give when resources are tight is think of the one gesture that you want to make because you can make a gesture with no resources you can make a gesture by picking a place and turning all the lights out you could make a gesture by just doing everything in one color often using limitation as a resource restriction as a resource and saying okay i have very little budget but i can take everything away except this and then the other thing is to really consider how you talk about your work This is something that I think is not very well taught at art school, particularly is how you articulate your work in words is also very important. What is the text that supports the images you're creating or the gesture you're making? I'm thinking of, is it Dora Lantico? Is that how you pronounce the name? Mm -hmm, I think so. Forgive us if I've mispronounced the name, but I remember being really struck by the gesture they were making by taking, I think it was an old Prada piece and maybe an old Dior piece. I'm not sure what the two designers were, but then just cutting them both down the middle and stitching them together to recycle them and to make something new out of something that was dead stock, this recycled dead stock idea. For me, that I found that so exciting that we can decide that this is valuable. We can decide that this is beautiful. We can determine what we consider to have beauty. Beauty can be whatever we decide it is. But that would be my advice really for anyone starting out is have a very clear intention, have a clear gesture and make your limitation, be they budgetary, space, time, make the limitation be the point, be the advantage. The last thing I want to quickly touch on today as is this whole new phenomenon of generative AI, artificial intelligence, that's the conversation around it, the fears that have come as a result of it, the opportunities that it creates. Most of the really creative people that I know are experimenting with AI and you know, are trying to find ways of integrating it into their creative processes. Like, How are you thinking about AI and are you scared of it? We began working with large language models in 2016, but not because I had a desire to work with AI. I was invited to work with Hans Ulrich Obrist at the Serpentine Gallery. I think you were there. You were part of this experiment, Imran. 
Oh, yes, I was. I remember that. So I was invited to help him make something with Yana Peel as well at the Serpentine for a party. And I didn't understand the invitation. I said, I don't really understand what does this mean? And Hans Ulrich said, think of it as a social sculpture. So I said, well, what if we make a collective poem so that everybody who comes this evening, you were there, Virgil Abloh was there, Rick Owens was there, a lot of other people, Andrew O'Hagan was there. There's a lot of people came that night. What if they could all contribute a word to a collective poem? And it wasn't because I wanted to work with AI. It was because large language models were the way to do the thing I wanted to do. I had a gesture I wanted to make. And the technique, the tool was in service of the gesture that I wanted to make. And that's my approach to technology generally is I think of the gesture and then the technology I enlist to help me make the gesture. And then, of course, once I learn about the technology, I have another idea that might be born of that. So we made the collective poem. It made individual photographs of people with their poem projected on their faces. I think yours was particularly beautiful. It's still there. And it's in the book, actually. Have you seen yourself in the book? Emily? No, I haven't. You're in there. You're in really? there in, in the poem portraits page. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I remember that picture and I remember the poem, but I had no idea that it was using a large language model. It certainly was. So it was using a model trained on 20 million words of Victorian poetry. And that poem that you were part of in 2016 is still being composed, co-authored today. We've now upgraded it to ChatGPT for the Google equivalent of, which I believe is called Bard. And we used it again at the UK Pavilion at the World Expo in 2020, where the whole front of the building composed a new poem every 90 seconds and it could have composed it every one second we had to slow it down so the humans had time to read it and for that we were using a 2019 version of chat gpt2 so we've been working with these models for a while and my instinct has always been to teach the models to learn with us be with us make art you know when my son takes the piss out of alexa at my mum and dad's house they have alexa you know, sometimes my children say, oh, do you love me, Alexa? They try and joke about her. And I say, don't take the piss out of Alexa. I don't think that's a good idea. You know, make art with her, but don't ridicule her. I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, my, my approach generally is to learn, to read as much as I can, rather than speaking from a position of inaccuracy or ignorance. So I've just read Mustafa Suleiman's book, The Coming Wave, oh, yes. which I really recommend. He describes the moment that AlphaGo did move 37, which was the move that completely floored Lisa Dole, the great Go master, and led to the algorithm winning the game of Go, which was thought to be impossible. He describes that the way that someone might describe discovering a new species. And I think overall, here's what I think about more than human intelligence is that we've always been surrounded by more than human intelligence in plants, in animals, in the species even that live inside us. And I hope that this reverence and perhaps fear or certainly reverence and respect for the more than human intelligence that we are perhaps being a midwife to now comes also with a respect and reverence for the more than human intelligence that's always been around us, that humans have never been the apogee of life on this planet. That's such a good way to put it. And in fact, at, at this coming BOF Voices, we have a talk by someone named Aza Raskin. And he's going to be talking to us both about 
AI from a ethical and moral standpoint, but also about some of the opportunities AI unlocks for us. He's part of this program or project called the Earth Series Project. I don't know if you know about it, mm-hmm. but they've been using AI to decode non-human communication. And it's absolutely incredible when you get a sense of the intelligence, what you're calling the non-human intelligence that exists all around us. So for everyone listening, make sure you you sign up to join us for BRF Voices 2023 because AI is a massive and important focus for us this year, you know, to do exactly what as just said, which is to learn about it because, you know, so many of us are still operating from a point of not ignorance necessarily, but just not full understanding or fully grasping what the potential is here. And as one day I would love to create a moment or an opportunity at a BOF event to bring that original community poem to life at one of our events. Because if you're still creating that poem, that would be a really beautiful thing to do at one of our events. We should definitely do it. And I think one of the things I've really learned from my exposure to your world, to the world of fashion also, is just the number of humans that work night and day to make exquisitely beautiful things. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember visiting Anier and seeing grandmothers, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all generations crafting um, items, you know, with absolute pride and taking time and the way that time gets woven into the seams of these objects and actually making the book, it is a really time-consuming, handcrafted exercise. And I've actually started to film the people who are making my book in China. And it makes me think of Anya. They are each day hand gluing, hand sticking, hand stitching. So I think the book definitely draws upon what I've learned about how much human love and compassion and time and hours go into making something that is precious and hopefully will bring enjoyment to a lot of people. Well, it is so precious. And I had no idea it was all being made by hand, but it makes sense now that I look back at it. So thank you, as for your time today. I always so enjoy our conversations. I can't wait till we can catch up again. Thank you so much, Imran. Thank you. It's been lovely. Bye-bye. Bye. The BOF Podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF Studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. 
Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.